Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rackman Review. I'm Rula Khalaf, editor of the Financial Times, and I'm standing in for Gideon Rockman this week because I have a very special guest, Sir Jeremy Fleming, director of Britain's Signals Intelligence Agency, GCHQ. Fleming was an art student who trained as an accountant and worked in the city before being drawn into the public sector. He applied for a job which was advertised as being in the Ministry of Defence, but was actually in the UK's domestic intelligence agency, MI5. As our lives move from the physical world to the virtual domain, it is the role of cyber spies like Fleming to work against those seeking to hack into critical infrastructure, spread disinformation, or steal intellectual property. Britain is also honing its offensive capabilities in cyberspace. So, How well-equipped is the UK to deal with these new and emerging threats? GCHQ, which is 102 years old this year, sits at the heart of the UK's national security framework. As the UK's top cybersecurity agency, it collects intelligence against national security threats. It also helps protect citizens and businesses from hackers. It is one of the only national signals intelligence organizations to have a global footprint of listening stations. I interviewed Fleming along with my colleague, Helen Worrell, the FT's former defense and security editor at the London headquarters of the UK's National Cybersecurity Centre, GCHQ's defensive arm. We spoke just as another of Britain's spy chiefs, Richard Moore of MI6, gave his first ever public speech setting out his concerns about the growing threat posed by China. The Chinese intelligence services are highly capable and continue to conduct large-scale espionage operations against the UK and our allies. This warning comes after the SolarWinds and Microsoft Exchange hacks in the US showed the vulnerability of Western networks to online espionage by both Russia and China. The coronavirus pandemic and the increase in remote working has also led to a surge in ransomware attacks, which are crippling companies and putting all our data at risk. And revelations about spyware made by Israel's NSO group and used by autocratic regimes to spy on activists, academics and journalists has increased concerns about the safety of our personal data. Apple is suing an Israeli spyware company known as the NSO Group. Lawsuit says the company broke U.S. law by selling tools that can remotely hack into phones. Apple wants to block the company. So I began by asking Fleming why the government is placing greater urgency now on building Britain's cyber power capabilities. We have been saying for some time that for nations to be influential and credible on the world stage, then of of course... They wield uh, soft power through their culture and their alliances. They also need to have the potential to use hard power. But in the 21st century and in this decade, it's increasingly obvious that nations also 
have to and want to wield uh, cyber power. For us, that means being influential in technology and cyberspace, being able to make sure that the UK is safe and prosperous given this cyber world. And so we need to be really thoughtful as a nation about how these various aspects of power come together. And those factors were set out recently by the government in a strategy. And uh, just in the next few weeks, we'll have a new national cyber strategy, which brings those out even more clearly. But I've said in public that within that construct, we face a moment of reckoning. And that moment of reckoning is when we understand that some of the traditional levers of power that the West has enjoyed for a long time, particularly in and around technology and moving east. And that's because China has stolen a march. That's because China is investing very heavily and overtly and covertly. And that's because it is starting to exercise real influence in the way in which the rules of the road are going to operate in a technology and a digital context for the future. So we have to work out what our response is to all of that. Is the digital renminbi a specific concern for you? in terms of giving influence to China beyond its borders, but also valuable data? We think that there's great opportunity from digital currencies. It, in many ways, democratizes uh, payment systems. It, it uh, reduces some of the lag in the relationships in those sorts of spaces. It potentially enables um, easier trade. You know, there are a whole range of opportunities that come from that, but wrongly implemented. It gives a hostile state the ability to uh, surveil transactions. It gives them the ability to get under the applications which have to be in place to uh, support all of that. And it, and it gives them the ability, in one way or another, to be able to uh, exercise control over what is conducted on, on those digital currencies. So I guess my, my view is that if the Chinese digital remnant B is operating in a way in which we can be assured about our values and the way it's operated, then the rest of the world will be joining in with that. But if, if we can't have that assurance, then I think we have to tread very carefully. How would you have that assurance? Do you see signs of what you're describing as a more threatening use of the Remimbi? I don't see those signs yet. But we know, for example, that 140 million individuals and businesses in China have already signed up to this. And we know, even in the context of the forthcoming Olympic Games, that China is taking every opportunity to project their digital currency and uh, the hope is that foreign visitors will use it in the same way as domestic visitors. So I think there's definitely work for us to do to better understand how that technology is being rolled out. But longer term, the issue has to be what sort of international regulatory standards do we want around digital currencies? And that means being really clear on the way in which they operate, the way in which they'll safeguard personal information, and, and if you like, the regulatory frameworks that allow all of us to understand that it's being used in the right way. Has the UK started any dialogue with China about regulation of these digital currencies, and have you sought any particular assurances so far? The conversations around digital currencies are happening right around the world at the, at the moment. And it's clear to me that there's quite a lot of confusion in the private sector about where cryptocurrencies stop and where digital currencies start. There's a real thirst from those involved in digital currencies, be they cryptocurrencies or national currencies, to have a much better dialogue about regulation. I'm not seeing that pull yet from China, but I'm, I'm hopeful that there could be. Of course, in all of these areas, when we're talking about the rules of the road, we have to remember that the, the international systems which govern the way in which states interact are largely still defined by the uh, years after the Second World War. And 
we, I think, as global nations and as Western democratic nations, need to decide what sort of framework we want for the future that we can properly investigate, govern and develop the standards that are going to be fit for the digital world. Isn't that the biggest challenge that leading uh, global powers are, are facing right now? Because cyberspace, AI weapons, there is the opacity of the world of conflict is not something that you can either count or that you can properly survey in many ways. How do you get to a new framework, new rules of the game? If we take a very long view on this, then this isn't a new situation. And uh, we've had to respond to changes in technology and changes in balances of global power and geopolitics. And so over the long term, I think we should be confident that we can create a new set of norms and a new set of alliances. We should be very confident in the West that our entrepreneurship, our ingenuity, our innovation and our values are extremely relevant and can come out on top in this conversation. So I, I'm not pessimistic about the way in which this will evolve. I think it's there for the taking. But this is not something that I think we can rely on happening in a rather sort of glacial evolutionary way. I think that there is this moment of reckoning, and I think many countries around the world are recognising this. I mean, who, who'd have thought that ransomware would become a subject on, around the G7 table in, in Cornwall just this year? These sorts of issues are now on the top table. But one further thing on this, I, I think there's a real danger, as in many aspects of national security work, that the conversation is defined by the threat. We, we have to main, maintain our fix on the opportunities here. And by that I mean that the technologies that have been developed and we can see it coming down the track, hold great promise for us from a prosperity perspective, from a security perspective, from a community perspective. But it's easy for these technologies to fall into the wrong hands. It's not very complicated. We're not talking about nuclear power here. No, but it's not easy for them to be promulgated globally. So I can see how that you know, analogy w works in some key use cases. But if we're, if we're talking about which sorts of global trading platforms are going to come out on top, then that's not something that just gets handed over. You know, this is something that it has to be developed and developed consciously. And so I think there is something for us to, to go after there. If we're serious about our position as a responsible democratic cyber power, I think the UK can play a really important role in that too. Do you think that there's any justification for the criticism that is sometimes leveled at, at the US, UK, Israel, that this is a space that was opened up by actions such as Stuxnet and that it's been in a way democratized, but that, you know, some countries bear more responsibilities than others in creating the opacity around cyber warfare. Uh, that's a very complicated uh, uh, question, and I, I think my broad answer is no. <laughs> let, me, let me try and un unpick, unpick <laughs> some of that. Yeah. Let me try and I unpick some of that. <laughs> so let me try and un unpick some of that. It is the case that cyberspace is increasingly a place in which global competition as well as global trade happens. And so the fact that those technologies have been democratised, I think, is to be welcomed. It's made and underpin the global economy. It's enabled us to connect societies and communities right across the world. In fact, I mean, it's hard to imagine how we would have coped with the pandemic of the last 18 months without those sorts of uh, technologies. So I think we have to applaud the way in which that has happened. But that said, it's developed in a way that at least initially didn't have security at its core. 
And so products, including the internet in its very early days, were, were not designed thinking that they might end up carrying the load that they are and were certainly not developed with security in the way we currently think about it. And so it is the case that capabilities have been built in with vulnerabilities and we've seen those who seek to contest us and uh, go against our interests exploit those vulnerabilities in ways which are against our interests and our values. So I think there's a few conclusions to take from all of that. Firstly, we've really got design and security from the start and that's security for everyone. GCHQ is a poacher and a gamekeeper. We are charged with making the UK the safest place to live and do business online. And so, you know, our interests and the way in which we consider our capabilities always start from that premise. But of course, obviously, we, we also collect intelligence. And we do that based on the best legal framework I've seen anywhere in the world. So there's a way in which we can make the system work in the future, even if in the past it's been a bit imperfect. There so. is a Snowden effect obviously, to needing to be more transparent and more out there and explaining what you do. I think Snowden is in that narrative, but he certainly doesn't define it. And Snowden cost our country and other countries a lot of treasure and uh, blood, and I still believe that he should be pursued through the courts. But that said, he came at a time when I think there was a need to update our narrative about what we're doing and how we're doing it. And so he, he fits in there, but it's definitely not defined by Snowden. And what's happened in this last decade, I think, is something that we forget at our peril. The open debates that we've had in Parliament about the sorts of things that we do. The judge-led work from uh, here in the UK, Judge David Anderson, to help the public and Parliament understand the sorts of operations that we mount. And then the world-leading legislation that has resulted. There's a continuum here, I think. Helen has written about the threat to smart city technology in the past. And I wanted to ask you whether you had seen proof that Chinese providers were supplying smart city technology in the UK. So we've certainly seen evidence that Chinese companies are interested in supplying smart city technology here in the UK. I'm not yet aware of a project where all of the smart city technology has gone to a Chinese provider. We know there are over 40 in Europe as a whole that are provided by Chinese companies. And of course, you know, smart cities are a, a classic example of the sorts of technologies we've already been talking about here. Because on the one hand, properly implemented and with assurance over the technology, they offer great promise for the way in which we live our lives in the built environment. But of course, implemented in a way which doesn't respect or anonymize personal data, then you can quickly see a situation where that technology enables an individual to be the subject rather than the experience of living in the environment. And of course, that's the fear here. And it's a broader fear in other contexts too, because it's clear that the competition for data is one of those big global competitions that we now face. Richard Moore of MI6 has talked about this idea of data harvesting, which I think Smart Cities is a very good example of. Are there other particular technologies where you think the potential of data harvesting is there and is potentially a threat? Modern life is increasingly dependent on the use of data. So we're all creating data every day in uh, how we work, how we shop, how we socialize, even how we travel. And of course, the accumulation of all of that data offers again, great potential advantage. But in, in the wrong hands, it's also deeply intrusive. So I think this is, um, this is again, one of those things where I believe that the public debate about it is not as developed as it should be. 
And I think that we ought to be having a whole of society and a whole of government conversation about what we do want and don't want in our data world. What are the questions that people should be asking? I, th- I don't think people should be naive about their data. And I think the, the, whole of, the whole of society needs to be very conscious, if you like, about the deals that are being made uh, with their data. And there are ways in which recent changes in legislation, some of them European, have made that much more transparent. But of course, that said, it's not as transparent as it needs to be. Do you think businesses are taking the cyber threat seriously enough? If you're a business in the UK in the last 18 months, then there's a 50-50 chance that you've suffered a ransomware attack. So half the businesses in the UK are thinking differently about cyber. If you're an individual, then over the lockdown period, I think there was an 85% increase in the incidence of crime online. And so I think that it is on people's consciousness and increasingly it's on businesses' consciousness. And I think boards are increasingly recognising it as a board-level risk. Has it gone far enough? No. But for most of us, most of the time, these are pretty simple actions we can take to make ourselves much more secure. And you'll all be bored of, of us talking about basic cyber hygiene and changing your password and backing up and making you understand that your business understands where your critical data are. But that is still so important. We should all be doing that, whether we're individuals or businesses. I'm someone who does take care of her cyber hygiene, and yet I appear to have been hacked by NSO technology. So how do you protect against that? And why is it that NSO hasn't been banned, for example, in the UK. It has in other countries. How concerned are you about such a company? So NSO is a company now sanctioned by the US for uh, the way in which it has sold cyber operational capabilities. Because the technology was then used by its yeah, like sorry, clients I'm, I'm, against activists and journalists. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sorry to hear that you were on the receiving end of that. Assuming that you've done all the things that you've been asked to do, you've kept your software up to date and you've been careful about the way in which you are connecting to things which obviously pose a threat, then for most people, and most people listening, then that would have been enough. Of course, there are, though, still some vulnerabilities out there that haven't been discovered by those people who are providing the base operating systems upon which we all live our lives, and uh, that vulnerability has been exploited. And the difference... I think in this case is that those capabilities were were then, um, you know, allegedly used by states who don't share our values and in systems where the rule of law and the oversight that we and other Western liberal democratic countries enjoy were just not there. So the, uh, the strategic question is, what do we really think about proliferation of these sorts of capabilities? And I think it's a really good question and it plays to some of the things we were discussing a few minutes ago, which is the immaturity of the global debate about the rules of the road for the future. But why, yeah. is, why is a company like NSO not sanctioned in the UK? Well, we haven't decided to sanction the uh, NSO group, but of course that's something that I'm sure the government will want to keep under close review. The way in which that capability has been deployed around the world is not something that we would ever be happy with in the UK system or would ever support. And I think we need to call out and uh, have called out that that sort of use of the capability is completely beyond the pale. It's not something that accords with our values or or our systems. There are different ways of of dealing with this. My personal view is that countries or companies that promulgate in an unconstrained way like that are damaging and should not be tolerated. And more than that, the systems within which they operated will become undermined if they're not addressed. So I think it's an important moment for us. 
I want to talk to you about AI. You have talked in the past about the need for a responsible debate around the use of AI, because AI is dynamic. Those who use it may not realize how powerful it is. If it can be something in the environment that humans can't see, for example, it may not act predictably. There's a new book co-authored by Henry Kissinger and Eric Schmidt. I don't know if you've had a chance to see it. But they ask, how does one develop a strategy, offensive or defensive, for something that perceives aspects of the environment that humans may not perceive? What do you say to that? And we were talking earlier about rules of engagement on cyber. Mm -hmm. Surely we need rules of engagement and pretty quickly on AI weapons as well. AI, of course, one of the most overused term in the uh, in the technical lexicon at the moment. Yes. And and so we are uh, in GCHQ, we try to be quite disciplined about how we describe these sorts of capabilities, uh, recognizing that, of course, one of our predecessors in Alan Turing set out the original test for artificial intelligence. But for me, it's helpful, I think, to discern between what is truly artificial intelligence, which is a way, way off, you no know, machines thinking in the way that humans think, to capabilities which are increasingly being built on the sorts of data that we were talking about earlier that are enabling the production of rules-based algorithms, some of which can then learn lessons from the way in which they're deployed and be reapplied to the data. So this is absolutely at the core of some of the thinking we've been trying to develop about responsible use. And GCHQ has tried to get ahead of this a bit. We've published the work of some collaborative study we did with a, uh, a think tanks here in the UK and with artificial intelligence and its possible use in intelligence and national security work. So I, I haven't read Eric and Henry Kissinger's uh, book yet, but I think the questions that they pose are properly up there at the top table now. I think it's all of our fear that technology will be developed in a way which starts to undermine our confidence that the technology is really supporting our prosperity and security. And for me particularly, to undermine our values and, and the way in which we think about properly reflecting the country we're here to serve. You may be familiar with the arguments of Stuart Russell, the AI expert. He talks about the inevitable endpoint for AI being the development of a market in autonomous weapons, which would become very cheap. And, you know, there'll be very cheap weapons of mass destruction. Is that something that's high on your list of concerns? I don't think it's inevitable, but I do think that the way in which machine learning in particular and later aspects of artificial intelligence come into our lives is going to be a massive factor in our economies, in the way in which society operates, and is, is already in some ways leaching into the way in which our militaries and well, our intelligence agencies work. So when we've had other capabilities like that, which have been unprecedented and that we have no experience of understanding, then we've ended up having proper global conversations and treaties around their use. And I fully expect that that's where we'll have to end up here. You know, the, do the doomsday scenario, the film-like image of, uh, you know, out of control, AI-dominated weaponry, I think that's a while off. Maybe taking the conversation into a slightly more optimistic perspective. <laughs> There's been a lot of discussion discussion about how biometrics and surveillance are changing traditional models of espionage. And obviously things like travelling undercover, it's now much harder for your sister agencies like MI6. And I was wondering, does this mean that the role of GCHQ is changing as well? Yeah, the role of GCHQ is changing very rapidly, probably one of the fastest times in our history. I mean, ultimately, uh, you've got uh, thousands of technologists in GCHQ uh, whose 
expertise can be brought to bear on a much broader problem set and can help shape policy for this digital and technical age in a way which aligns deeply with others and, uh, and other sorts of policy expertise across across government. Just going back to what you said about how fast things are changing, the fact that we're all living our lives online a lot more, doesn't that make things a lot easier for you to track and identify, obviously entirely within the law, um, what individuals are doing that may be of concern? No, it doesn't, it doesn't make it easier. And um, I'm glad that you qualified your question, <laughs> because, you know, always within the law, we only do what is necessary and proportionate and is legal, obviously. It presents a different environment for us within which we operate. But I have to say that the global technology industry, despite some of the issues that we've discussed already, is pretty good at security. And so it's not a trivial thing even with those authorities, to be able to understand uh, what uh, groups of individuals who seek to cause the UK harm or our interests harm are up to. You know, it's still a deeply sophisticated and and technical uh, job. Who are the most sophisticated players in this space other than the Chinese and the Russians? And are, are you seeing any new players coming onto this space from an offensive perspective? The most uh, prominent countries are the four that I've talked about publicly and others have talked about publicly. And so uh, Russia and China are at the top of the league. And then, of course, we see Iran and North Korea playing in cyberspace and continue to to see all four of those actors in various ways. But, of course, it's no no longer just the preserve of, of states. And so the extent to which cyber capabilities are now within reach of criminals and serious organised crime groups, some of them themselves closely aligned to states, in Russia in particular, means that we have to, as a nation, in a way, be a bit actor agnostic. And of course, you, you, don't, you don't require great sophistication to be able to, uh, um, to mount a cyber crime uh, and to cause harm. We've written about the National Cyber Force, which is using offensive cyber capabilities. Can you tell us more about how these would be deployed and whether they've been targeted at ransomware gangs, for example? National Cyber Force is, is a partnership between intelligence and defence. GCHQ and MOD are the biggest partners. SIS and, and other government agencies are involved in that effort. And it is already doing a good job some of which I've been able to talk about publicly. So I've talked about Islamic State, and that is as far as we will go at the moment. The point about a whole of cyber in the UK is that it builds out from our defensive posture, that it only works if it's within a context where we've, and the government has invested very heavily in our cyber security. And so cyber actions and reactions are not just constrained to that space. You mean it's in the toolbox? It's part of a toolbox? In the 21st century, then, it's a really important part of our cyber power. It's how states compete. It becomes a part of statecraft because it is about influencing. It's about shaping as much as it's about, uh, you know, the more destructive end of the envelope. Indeed, I think if we've learned one thing about cyber power over the last two decades that an exquisite red button for cyber capabilities really doesn't exist. You know, you you use cyber capabilities to contest and compete. So it's a much more continuous, what the Americans call persistent engagement model. That was Jeremy Fleming, director of GCHQ, ending this edition of the Rackman Review. Thanks for joining me. Gideon will be back as usual next week.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.